0: I'm occasionally asked, what is my favourite reflections from Asia? Well, it's difficult to say. One particular one does stick in my mind because it concerned one of the earliest political crises that I was aware of as a youngster and which my father patiently explained to me. The Munich crisis in 1938... When we first broadcast this reflection in someone had used the phrase to describe North Korea, a faraway country about which we know nothing. But that was exactly the phrase which Premier Neville Chamberlain used about Czechoslovakia as he set about appeasing Hitler. So here's Neville Chamberlain, rejoicing at his alleged success from a veranda in 10 Downing Street.
1: Two things I want to say. First of all, I've received an immense number of letters during all these anxious times, and so has my wife. Letters of support and approval and gratitude. And I can't tell you what an encouragement that has been to me. I want to thank the British people for what they have done. And next I want to say that the settlement of the Czechoslovakian problem which has now been achieved, is, in my view, only the prelude to a larger settlement in which all Europe may find peace. This morning, I had another talk with the German Chancellor, Herr Hitler. And here is the paper which bears his name upon it as well as mine. Some of you, perhaps, have already heard what it contains, but I would just like to read it to you. We, the German Führer and Chancellor, and the British Prime Minister have had a further meeting today and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. We are resolved that the method of consultation... Shall will be the method adopted to deal with any other questions that may concern our two countries, and we are determined to continue our efforts to remove possible sources of difference and thus to contribute to assure the peace of Europe.
0: That was British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain on his return from Munich on September the 30th, 1938, affirming that appeasement of Hitler had produced peace. He had made a similar speech at the airport, but those remarks you have just heard were probably made from a window of 10 Downing Street where another crowd greeted him as he waved his piece of paper and proclaimed his passionate belief that there would now be peace in our time. So it's important to remember again what actually happened after Munich. Six months later, on March fifteenth, 1939, the nation which Britain and France had failed to defend, Czechoslovakia, was incorporated within the German Empire. Eleven months after Munich, Chamberlain had to declare war on Germany following the German invasion of Poland. Another nine months after that, in May 1940, Chamberlain had to resign following Britain's failure to defend Norway against the German onslaught and his loss of support in the House of Commons. Another three months after that, and Germany, allied to the second member of the Axis Alliance, Italy, had effectively conquered Europe. Britain stood alone. It was another 15 months before Japan helpfully rectified the power imbalance by attacking Pearl Harbour, thereby bringing the decisive weight of the United States into the struggle against the Axis. So what are some of the realities which we should be remembering 70 years on? The events at Munich have been forever entwined with the single reality, appeasement, But as always, history was more complicated than that. So what were some of the key ingredients of this undoubted crisis which had Western Europe on edge in fear of war? As Chamberlain spoke wearily to those enthusiastic crowds in London, he had been the world's first practitioner and victim of what later became known as Shuttle Diplomacy. Chamberlain visited Germany at least three times during September 1938, a previously unheard-of amount of diplomatic travelling by air, which, given the slow speed of 1938 aircraft, must have taken its physical toll on Chamberlain. As so often happens with the shuttle format, even today, there was a lack of insistence upon the diplomatic reciprocity. Hitler never even considered taking a flight to Britain. Chamberlain did not insist that he do so, thereby, wittingly or unwittingly, casting himself in the role of supplicant, unwilling or unable to say a simple no to Hitler's ever-escalating demands for the dismemberment of Czechoslovakia. The record suggests that the more Chamberlain conceded, the less Hitler thought of him and the more he demanded from him. Czechoslovakia had been created after the First World War by the Treaty of Versailles. But Czechoslovakia contained a minority of ethnic Germans in its province of Sudetenland. Hitler had come to power by arousing German nationalism against the Versailles Treaty and promising to rectify its wrongs. In March 1938, he had successfully manoeuvred to persuade Austria to become part of Germany. He then focused on the German minority in Sudetenland, initially claiming them as part of Germany. All too quickly, Chamberlain conceded this point. Britain and France pressured the Czechs to surrender their sovereignty over Sudetenland. Hitler demanded that the province become part of Germany on October the 1st. In the House of Commons debate on October the 5th, 1938, Winston Churchill brilliantly described where Chamberlain's shuttle diplomacy had led. Sadly, there are no recordings of his speeches at this time. Quote, the utmost the Prime Minister has been able to gain for Czechoslovakia in the matters which were in dispute has been that the German dictator, instead of snatching his victuals from the table, has been content to have them served to him, course by course. If the House will allow me to vary the metaphor, one pound was demanded at Pistol's Point. When it was given, two pounds were demanded at Pistol's point. Finally, the dictator consented to take one pound, 17 shillings and sixpence, and the rest in promises of goodwill for the future, unquote. After having, uh, earlier in the 1930s, given Hitler briefly the benefit of the doubt, Churchill had no difficulty calling Hitler a dictator and treating him as such. Chamberlain, on the other hand, illustrated the difficulty democratic leaders often have, even today, in seeing authoritarian leaders for what they are, preferring to fantasize that they are just like us. Reading the record, one glimpses a prime minister who sees Hitler as someone like himself who hates war and with whom it should be possible to do a deal for peace. Chamberlain does not see himself as being terribly naive. Too often Democrats shy away from clearly recognizing that dictators usually have a positive agenda of their own, often aggressive and sometimes malevolent, and that to combat them diplomatically requires democratic leaders to have a positive agenda of their own and to be willing to stand up for it. The failure of some Western leaders to see Saddam Hussein for what he was. George W. Bush looking into Putin's eyes and soul and seeing a man with whom he can deal. European leaders taking a benign view of Slobodan Milosevic. These are but some recent example of this enduring democratic inability to see clearly where harsh authoritarian leadership inevitably leads. An additional trouble is that democratic leaders, apart from lacking firm resolve, do not always possess the military strength to back whatever resolve they do have. This was particularly true in Chamberlain's case. Successive governments had allowed British defence spending to decline or to stagnate, Chamberlain's Conservative predecessor, Stanley Baldwin, had been particularly remiss in this regard, and Chamberlain had not radically improved the situation, which was so brilliantly described by Churchill in a November 1936 debate on defence in one of the greatest pieces of House of Commons invective. Quote, Everything, the First Lord of the Admiralty assured us, is entirely fluid. I am sure that is true. Anyone can see what the position is. The government simply cannot make up their minds, or they cannot get the Prime Minister to make up his mind. So they go on in strange paradox, decided only to be undecided, resolved to be irresolute, adamant for drift, solid for fluidity, all-powerful to be impotent. So we go on preparing more months and years, perhaps vital to the greatness of Britain, for the locusts to eat. They will say to me a minister of supply is not necessary for all is going well. I deny it. The position is satisfactory. It is not true. All is proceeding according to plan. We know what that means. Unquote. Churchill believed that power was an essential element in conducting foreign affairs. Chamberlain hoped that goodwill and a shared desire for peace could transcend power. Under the pressure of Hitler's pursuit of an expanding German empire, an essential element in Chamberlain's appeasement was a dangerous belief in peace at any price. Chamberlain was not a pacifist, but during the Munich crisis he claimed close to being one. Today it is easy to forget that Munich took place only 20 years after the terrible, terrible carnage of the First World War. Chamberlain had lost several close relatives and many friends in the protracted trench warfare. Avoidance of war seemed to him an absolute imperative, so he sought conciliation. Hitler sought revenge for Germany's defeat. There was another, less admirable side to Chamberlain's passion for peace. He disdained a small country like Czechoslovakia and sought to justify his stand by making it more distant than it actually was. In a broadcast he made at the height of the Munich crisis, two sentences illustrate his horror of war and why, unlike Churchill, he does not wish to deploy British power and influence in defence of the Czechs.
1: How horrible. Fantastic. Incredible it is that we should be digging trenches and trying on gas masks here because of a quarrel in a faraway country between people of whom we know nothing. It seems still more impossible that a quarrel which is already settled in principle should be the subject of war.
0: A faraway country about whom we know nothing? The amazing sentiment is a reminder that another ingredient in Munich was a political tendency which the British recognised in the United States, but not in themselves, that of isolationism. And it is isolationism today which results in revisionists revisiting Munich and maintaining that Chamberlain was well meaning or right, Churchill misguided or just plain wrong. Yet it is still impossible to dispute that Churchill came closest to summarizing what went wrong for Britain. He described Munich as a total and unmitigated defeat. Quote, can we blind ourselves to the great change which has taken place in the military situation and the dangers we have to meet? This is only the beginning of the reckoning. This is only the first sip of a bitter cup which will be preferred to us year by year unless by a supreme recovery of moral health and martial vigour we rise again and take our stand for freedom as in the olden time. Unquote. Another terse verdict on Munich is credited to Churchill. Chamberlain was given the choice between war and dishonour He chose dishonor, but he will get war. The biting irony is that it was appeasement in Asia which helped Britain to arise again as Churchill wished. It is seldom ever mentioned, but there was also a lot of British and American appeasement of Japan throughout the 1930s. Japan's acquisition of Manchukuo was censored in the League of Nations, but Japan then left the League. Japan's further invasion of China in 1937 was not forcefully opposed. Japan, like Hitler, felt free to pursue further conquests. But after Pearl Harbor, Japan forced the Anglo-American alliance to take its stand for freedom. One last word. So why did the North Korean report set me off on this train of thought? Simple. The report was sponsored by former Czechoslovakian and then Czech president, Václav Havel. Did he issue it on the 70th anniversary of Munich? Because he saw in North Korea the danger of the world once again forgetting a faraway country about whom we know nothing.